This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Clyde Snow and Sessions, based in Salt Lake City with offices in Oregon and California. For over 65 years, Clyde Snow has represented clients throughout the West. Clyde Snow, serious about solutions. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect, a podcast putting water into context. I'm Emily Lewis, your host, and I'm a water attorney here in Salt Lake City, Utah, practicing creative solutions to today's and tomorrow's water problems. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect. I'm very excited for our conversation today because today's topic is something that is kind of a little bit of a nitty gritty water rights matter, but really has very broad applications for how water operates, at least here in the state of Utah, but I think more broadly. And so I have with me today, Steve Jones. Steve is the CEO of Hanson Allen and Luce, which is an engineering firm here in the state of Utah. And Steve is an engineer by trade, But Steve and I have been working together on a number of projects this year, and in each one of these projects, this concept of mass balance accounting of water rights or a mass balance approach for water rights management has come up. And I thought that it'd be a great topic for us to dive into because it's really interesting and has lots of practical applications. So Steve, before we get into mass balance accounting, can you give us a little bit of a background of kind of who you are and the kind of work you do? Yes. And so I have been working in Utah as a civil engineer for over 20 years. So starting out doing lots of master planning. And part of master planning is understanding water rights, the legal side of the water availability, in addition to all the other things that go around along with master planning, growth and and pipe sizes and water source supply, the physical side of things. Yeah, that's how I got kind of got into this is helping cities answer the questions that needed to be answered in terms of planning for the future. Which are the pertinent questions. Yes. <laughs> awesome. So maybe to kind of give us an entree into this conversation for those folks who aren't on the water right side of this discussion, can we talk a little bit about kind of like what a city water rights portfolio typically looks like just in, you know, in terms of kind of the individual kind of water rights the city has? And then maybe we can talk about how all those water rights work in concert with each other and how they kind of help you fulfill these planning goals. Yeah, so maybe I could describe a typical city portfolio when I walk into it. Typically, the city will have, in Utah, will have a portfolio of groundwater rights. And that's because that has been the typical source of drinking water. Early on, I guess when you go back 100 years, after they figured out they can't necessarily just dip in the river, they figured out springs were the next best source of water before it's influenced by surface contamination. And so typically a city will have a great portfolio of groundwater rights, which includes springs. And then typically there's a group of surface water. Now, typically that's in terms of irrigation because after they figured out they can't really drink that water safely, they focused on it being used for irrigation for a long time. So typically they would have If there's a a surface water source in the area, there'll be a surface water, like a river or a stream. They'll have surface water right portfolio. And then a lot of times outside of that, which is usually one, it's a decree or something that's their surface water, but they also have this portfolio of 
shares, irrigation shares that they've acquired over the years. As, as land develops and the irrigator no longer uses that for irrigating the field, for crops, they turn it to the city. And then so the city has this big pile of shares in various states of, I, I would say, disarray usually. <laughs> and, and that's what they've got, this pile of surface water rights, groundwater rights. Typically, it's the groundwater rights that they're focused on because that's the drinking water source. And then they have this usually a surface water a decree or a, a right. And then all these piles of shares of irrigation rights of one sort or another. And usually those irrigation shares are based on water rights owned by the companies and the shares are the contractual right of use for that water. Correct. Okay. And so for those who maybe like are more on the engineering side or newer to this conversation, we've got this bucket of water rights. We've got groundwater that are drinking water sources, surface water that are used for irrigation and these shares. Each one of these rights, though, has kind of their own definition, right? Each one of them yes. has kind of like their own very specific elements. Can you walk through kind of what are the traditional elements that each water right's going to have that it kind of defines how and where and what you can do with it? Yes. So that's usually the first thing we do is we look at each water right individually and determine, okay, what's the diversion What's the diversion limit for this water, right? And that's the right to divert the water. And so the second one, depletion, is a lot of times when we first come in, they ask, what is depletion? It's the lesser known part or the lesser focused part of the water, right? But it is mm -hmm. very important. And that's the amount of water that actually can be consumed by the beneficial use. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's good to determine that one. Also, I think these are the components you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and diversion and diversion will be, though, just before we get to pollution, diversions like both the amount of water you can take from the natural system, but also built into that is like the source. This has to come from the Provo River or this comes yes. from Spring Creek or this comes from a different, you know, where physically you're going to take the water. That's right. Yeah. Yes, it defines on the source of your water and how much can be physically diverted. And then the amount that you have to put back or the amount that's used up to get it to your beneficial use, that's the water that's supposed to return or get used. And then you're left with this depleted amount or the amount that you actually have the right to consume. You want to call and it that Yeah. And historically, those have been, if it's irrigation, what the crops would have consumed. And you may have changed that yep. to municipal over time. Yep. Okay. And irrigation is generally about 50%. It depends, but about 50%. And a lot of times the older municipal rights, if you want to call them that, historically were at one point in time defined as 100% depletion. That, that's a little bit messy, but just in general, that's what mm -hmm. you typically see. But if you convert an irrigation right to a municipal right, legally it's got to keep that depletion diversion ratio. So that's that's an important concept yeah. that sometimes gets lost. Okay. Because a water right's not a water right, not a water right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they're all they're all individual special flowers. Yes. Okay. And Great. I, and mm -hmm. so the the other component, and I don't know if you wanted to get in this, is just mm -hmm. what is its status? Yes. Uh was mm -hmm. is this worthless? <laughs> or is this 
valuable or do you need to do something to protect it, et cetera. So the status of it. So water rights have all sorts of different statuses. So understanding its status, whether it's certificated or, or, or whatever it might be, or in some status that's withdrawn or whatever, is it a valid water right or not? Can it be preserved or resurrected, if you want to call it that, depending on the situation with the water right? So understanding its status is, is also very important to understand whether it should be put in the portfolio or put in the problem pile. <laughs> the problem pile. Right. So you've got yes. diversion limit, which is like both, you know, the encapsulating that the amount of water you can take from a specific source. You've got the depletion, the amount of water that you're legally allowed to deplete under this water right, typically about 50 percent ish if it's a re- traditionally an irrigation water right. And then I think it is really important that we talk about the status of water rights because you could have a water right that the city acquired that hasn't been used for 50 years and is potentially subject to forfeiture or yep. It's an application that lapsed many, many years ago. And so, you know, you also go in and look at kind of not just what potentially on paper you could be using, but also what you're legally entitled to use. Correct. Okay. So you've got this kind of bouquet of individual water rights. They're kind of from these mixed sources you mentioned with groundwater and surface sources and spring sources and irrigation company shares. What's your next step for how you assist cities in best utilizing these water rights to meet their goals? The first step is usually to determine the paper value, if you want to call it that, the water right value of now your pile of good water rights and understanding how much you have total deplete and divert. The next step is usually, okay, what's the water source tied to that? Is there actually physical water Mm -hmm. (laughs) available tied to that? And so what I started to find out, for example, the groundwater. So, okay, so we have a pile of groundwater rights. That's the paper value. Now you've got to figure out how much physically that pile of water is worth. Look at the physical supply attached to that water. And so, for example, groundwater, Typical, what I would find is I would start looking at the well logs and say, why is your water down 100 feet over the last 30 years? That's one type of mass balance that I recommend that you do. How much groundwater actually replenishes every year? And so it's not uncommon that once we do that exercise, that a city might have double or triple or quadruple the rights than what is actually in there physically in the ground. And so that's the next step is physically, is the water available for that pile of water rights you have? And the same thing can be done with the surface water rights. And it's a little bit of a different animal, but usually the water rights for surface are based on highest flow. And so how often do we have that flow? And if it's only once every 20 years, well, let's pick a different number. Yes, you have this pile of water rights, but it's actually worth probably 50% diversion and probably depletion potentially because the water is not available every year. You only have available what comes down, let's say the river. Mm-hmm. And so that's the next step is to line up physical availability to your pile of water rights. And, and typically you'll cut it back quite dramatically And then sometimes I say, stop collecting groundwater rights because they're worthless and they have been worthless for the last 20 years because you've (laughs) exceeded the physical supply. 
So how do cities take that when you have to tell them that they have 100,000 acre feet of water on paper, but they only have 50,000 acre feet of water available or whatever the amount is? (laughs) Typically, they say, oh, well, we suspected that based on our groundwater well conditions. So Mm -hmm. if they have to pull back or they've had to lower their wells or their pumps five times in the last 10 years. So typically they... They say, yeah, you know what, you're you're absolutely right, and we kind of knew that. <laughs> so that's usually the comment is they already know that. Because uh, yeah, I probably actually so because I very much have the highest respect for city facilities managers yes. and, and all this. I mean, those are the folks who really do know what's going on on the ground, right? And usually the water right got piled up twenty years ago because that's mm-hmm. kind of what was going on twenty years ago. They didn't really understand matching it up. They just assumed that there was an unlimited supply of water underground. So we just drill more wells. That was their assumption. And we just collect those water rights and we'll be fine. And now we know different. (laughs) Now, yes, we know different. (laughs) Okay. So you've kind of walked into a new project. You've looked at their portfolio of rights. You've kind of looked at what their status is. You've taken your pile of good water rights, and especially for groundwater matched it up to what the physical wet water availability is. And then from that, you kind of are starting to get a picture of what's actually potentially available to one of your clients. Exactly. Okay. And so then we have to look at, well, what demand are you assuming now and in the future? And once you start cutting it because of these issues that we've talked about, then you say, oh, oh. We don't have enough water to meet the future. So what do we do? There's a couple options you can do. Conservation, right? Reduce how much water per capita we're using or go find more water. And sometimes that means, well, we got to import water. We don't have enough in our in our stream and in the ground. Mm-hmm. So we got to find a solution. And so... How outside importing water from a conservancy district that might have developed a large supply or, you know, a pipeline of some kind from somebody who has a water source, like, what do you do to kind of do the best work you have with what you've got, you know, from your portfolio of rights? Do you look at how you can best puzzle out the rights to kind of get the most, to maximize them? Like, how do you kind of now start looking at this picture in the aggregate opposed to these individual sources. Yes. So then it gets interesting, right? So Mm -hmm. we could look at the surface water and the groundwater kind of separately. So then you ask yourself, okay, so if we only have this much available every 20 years, when we do have a surplus or more or closer to what our water right is, when we have that, what should we do with it? Could we take it and somehow put it in the ground so that we can save it for several years when the surface water is low, and then we can pump it. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one trick, I guess you could say, where you can expand your portfolio by combining it. And this is also a point of why you can't just add this and this and this on top of each other, because some water rights are not always available when the other one is available, if that makes sense. So sometimes you have to say, this is our plan for this type of year, and this is our plan for this type of year. So typically what we do is we put together some sort of a tool, like an, even as simple as an Excel spreadsheet, that you have all of these now physical volumes and water rights. So once we put together this data, 
a lot of times we will help a city put together a tool like an Excel or a Google Doc that actually at the beginning of the irrigation season, they can look at what the snowpack is and what physically might be available for that year. And then, yeah, you can move the pieces around, the puzzle pieces around and say, okay, how can we best maximize our water right portfolio and line it up to when the water is available? Because another thing I saw in cities is they would focus on certain water rights at the wrong time of year, if that makes sense, and let all the river water go downstream. And then later when they need it, they say, oh, we need that, but it's not physically available. So then if they can plan for the year, matching up the snowpack and the river forecast, low rate forecast, and then we can match up the right paper water right to the physical supply at the right time to maximize the volume for the year, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. one tool yeah. that they can use is year after year, figure out ways that they can potentially store water or avoid pumping and focus on the surface water, let's say, or within the year, use the right water rights at the right time when the physical supply is available. Okay. So to do this, you know, here in the state of Utah, you you mentioned kind of our, our diversion values. And so yes. our diversion values here in the state typically have two kind of subcomponents, which are we'll typically have a CFS flow rate, you know, and then we'll typically have an acre foot volume. And so both of those typically are limits on the water right. In my water law class, I like to explain it to people that the acre foot volume is kind of the size of your tub, how big your tub is. You can only fill the tub so high. And then the flow rate is how big your spout is. And so you have a, a small spout will fill your tub up slower or a big spout will you know, fill your tub up quicker. But at the end of the day, both of those are going to be limits on your water rate. For yes. you to kind of do the machinations that you're talking about, about using your water rights when and how, how does that flow rate and acre foot volume limitation how do those work or, or what do you need to do to release yourself from some of those limits so that you're able to kind of best maximize the sources when they're available? So it's like using this spreadsheet, your mass balance to figure out, okay, when the flow is high, I want to focus on that and get it into my system. Because if I don't focus on that and just take it at the same flow rate all year round, I'm going to let a lot of water go downstream, which we can talk about that later. That that might not be bad, but mm-hmm. for downstream users. But so that's that's one way you can try to maximize. I guess that's what I'm trying to say about doing this planning at the beginning of the season is when am I going to have my high flows and how can I put to use as much of that as possible when it's available? Or as far as groundwater rights are concerned, That's the advantage of groundwater is it sits in storage underneath you. And so you can use that for peaking because you're using pumps to bring it up to the highest flow rate that you legally pump at. But you do that offset of the time when the river is flowing at its highest, right? So you'd leave the least amount on the table as possible. And... Typically for these cities, you know, here in the state of Utah, we have a change application proceeding that is something that is an administrative proceeding of which if you want to change any element of a water right, which includes the underlying beneficial use, you know, any kind of place of use, uh, source, if you want to change sources, you kind of have to go through this change application. 
to kind of get to this mass balance approach, be able to maximize these rights, typically are you are you doing kind of a large change application that throws all these rights into one change application together? Or or how are you kind of like legally able to kind of maximize these rights in this way? Yes. We usually get to that mm-hmm. after we figure out the paper pile and then the the physical pile that goes with it. We almost always say you got to clean up your water rights. And usually we're going back to the paper. So a lot of times the cities will just, they'll have a pile of, let's say, shares in irrigation companies like we talked about. And we strongly recommend that they file a change application on those because just using them as they are is not legally as protective as actually filing for the use that you are now wanting to use them. And a lot of times there's irrigation companies involved, irrigators. We recommend that they do the negotiations up front, find those win-win situations, file the change applications. So then you know what the true value of that water is, whether that's paper or or the physical part. You really don't know until you've perfected the water right. You've filed for what your end beneficial use is going to be going into the future. Mm-hmm. Until then, you don't know really what they're what they're worth, if you want to call it that, both physical and legally. And then, if you are filing on, you know, a bucket of water rights, like a portfolio, so that you can kind of do the mix and matching that you talked about earlier, mm-hmm. how do you keep track? Because you know, you you've talked mostly about flow, you know, yep. maximizing the flow. But the other point of that is the, de- the depletion component that we chatted about. Yes. That, you know, what you actually have is your water right is the depletive component. It's not just what you divert from the system, but it's actually what you use because we need to keep water in the stream for downstream use for return flows. How do you keep track of that to make sure you're not exceeding, you know, what your legal depletion limits are on that portfolio? The best way to do that, obviously, is to keep track of both. Okay. And and one interesting thing that we've seen in our planning and modeling is that in the past, there's been more focus on the depletion part, the actual part that you can consume. But I, I guess an important concept is when you're focused on indoor water, which going into the future, there's more and more indoor water needed as there's less and less irrigation because the more people you cram into an area the more indoor use you need and the outdoor use actually goes down. And so for indoor use, it's typical that 80, 85, even 90% of that water actually goes back after you treat it, you divert it, it goes into the home. And then there's a great amount that goes back to the system. So the depletion is actually very low. So instead of depletion, you're actually, you could run up against diversion first. Whereas outdoor use is particularly if you've split your system into drinking water system and PI or secondary water system, you got to look at what you run up against first. And typically indoor, it's diversion. You want to focus on the diversion. The depletion is far away because of how much you're sending back to the system. But the irrigation, it's usually the depletion you run up against first, not necessarily the diversion. So you might have to cut back your diversion because you run up against the depletion side of things. So So it's really kind of a big matrix of like debits and credits. Yes. Yep. Okay. 
Because I think that is one thing that's interesting to understand is like as we move into having these more complex municipal systems and municipal water rights, water does come back into the system. And you may actually have less depletion under a municipal right than you would under irrigation. And so you're still capped by the historic depleted value. So if I had four acre feet per acre on an irrigation right, I could still only cap you know, use two acre feet of that and two acre feet have to stay in the system. But how that two acre feet of depletion is used, could you you could potentially use quite a lot of that, right? You yes. Know, like, okay. Yep. So in working with these cities, is that something that is internally, I'm assuming it has to be internally tracked, but do you report that back to the state engineer? Like how do we make sure that in moving to kind of these mass balance approaches for water rights, we're not impairing other water users or shooting yep. ourselves in the foot by taking more water than we thought they were going to take? How do we report that? Or, or yep. what, what does that side of things look like? Yeah. So like, as you know, in the past several years, they've cracked down on that. It's more accurate. They report it to the state every year. There's state employees that have been hired to help cities do that accurately. But if you look at almost every municipal approved water right that I've seen, you look at the memorandum and it says you are required to report the diversion. Fine. Everybody's mostly doing that. But it also says you got to report or keep track your depletion. Make sure you don't go over the historic depletion. And so I recommend to all my cities that I help that they keep track of both. I would say it's not asked for very much right now, other than if there's an issue or a complaint. But I would assume that that's coming because it'll be very important (laughs) to keep track of that. And in terms of that, it just is that these are actual depletions based on actual use. I mean, like, I mean, I guess I'm questioning because if we're not like, you know, it's easy to calculate depletion on irrigation because it's typically a metric that the state engineer publishes for where you are in the state. But when you're a municipality, you've got like grass, you've got industrial, you've got homes, all kinds of uses. So how do you... How do you keep track of that depletion number when you've got a variety of uses using this water? Right. So for indoor, especially, again, if if the city is splitting their system, it's fairly easy to keep track of exactly what's going on, like in the indoor system, because it's all enclosed. You meter it coming in, you meter it going out. So you kind of know what you're diverting and what you're depleting and what you're sending back to the system. And then on the PI secondary side, it actually becomes a little bit easier because you've removed the drinking water component. So even though it's trickier, it's it's actually easier in a PI system to figure out what you're diverting and what you're depleting. Now, sometimes it's you have to use a little bit different methods. And, and there are methods out there where we have the, like the infrared data where we can actually, it's pretty cool, where you can take the infrared data and figure out how moist or how much water has been put on that piece of ground at that snapshot in time. And then you can line it up with the, you know, the meter. So if you have meters on the secondary system, which a lot of cities do nowadays, you can actually calibrate that and then figure out how much people are putting on their grass on the ground. So how much loss they need, how much loss does the system need? A lot of systems have opened ponds. And so that, requires more water than is actually depleted. So in systems that have lots of metering, you can get pretty accurate to how much Mm -hmm. is actually required. And then if you actually create rate structures that match that, 
I mean, money talks and it gets people using the right amount and, mm. and, and there's less wasting. That's why everybody's focused on getting the meters on the PI system. But typically what I'm seeing, just general rule, the city needs at least like 20% in a good new system to get the water to the customer. And then you need at least 20% on top of that to let the customer be a little bit wasteful, if that makes sense. And then the rest is assumed to be put on grass and used wisely. And that's but for I, outdoor use. That's for outdoor yeah, use. So you've got for, two this systems. Is for outdoor use. Yeah. Okay. Because you've got and, the culinary we, system that's easy to track because you know oh, it's that's going really in. really easy because yep. you're, you're metering all over the place. You're metering yep. it in, you meter it into the home, you meter it to the treatment plant because there's metering the treatment plant bills you for how much water you send to them. So that that's pretty cut and dry. That's, there's a lot of data that shows that. Mm-hmm. And then I'm saying them the systems that have secondary systems that have all this metering, you can typically figure out what is being diverted, how much needs to be diverted, and how much needs to be sent to the homeowner, and really how much is being depleted and how much is returning to the system. So, for example, like Saratoga Springs, we've determined that it's about, they need about three if, turf. We're talking about turf. And this is in Saratoga Springs, not the best soils, but they can get away with about 3.13. It seems pretty precise, but that's about what they've figured out. They need to divert for every acre of irrigated land. They need to divert that amount into their system to give them about 20% losses to deliver about 2.5 to the homeowner. And then it's assumed that the homeowner can use about two. Now, when you look at the data, homeowners do all sorts of things, but essentially that's what they're doing because that's what the rate has them do because every home in Saratoga Springs, they have a different level of service or a different amount that they're allocated based on the amount of irrigated area basically they bought. Mm-hmm. And so some people, they fertilize and, and do do it very efficiently. Others say, you know what, I, it, this is too hard. So they take out half and still are wasteful, but that's what they paid for. But in general, that's we're seeing in Saratoga Springs, we did the infrared data before and after and all the way through. And essentially, they're just as green as before they put in meters. And people are doing it. They're keeping their grass green for less amount of water. Okay. And you're able to account for that so that your water rights portfolio could go go further. Because I think that's, yes. that's the other side of this. It's not yeah. just maximizing our sources, but you know, here in the state of Utah, we've got critical needs everywhere, but, you know, we've, we've got these, these acute issues with the Great Salt Lake and the Colorado. And yes. on the Great Salt Lake side, we're trying, I think one, one thread of the conversation is how to, how to actively engage the municipal user in a way that they understand that their contributions for using less water are going to affect the lake and hopefully, you know, bring some water to the lake. And it's not the yes. wet water molecule. Like if you take out a you know a foot of sod in your yard, that wet water molecule that may have been applied there, that that water molecule itself is probably not going to actually physically make it to the lake, but it allows the municipal provider to make their water go further so you don't yes. have to develop new water. Right. There's mm-hmm. offsets. Okay. And so then, so this accounting that you guys, you're helping these municipalities with is not only helping you kind of maximize the water rights and the sources and the operations, but it's also giving them a plan for reductions in water use, right? 
Yes. Exactly. And, and how do they do? I mean, like, how are how are municipalities kind of approaching that? I mean, when they're looking at, you know, you mentioned 10 minutes ago or so that you have to not only compare out the pile of good water rights and the sources, but, you know, the third element is demand, you yes. know, how, how do we accurately say if you do X, Y, and Z, your existing portfolio is going to meet X more amount of demand? Like, is it, how, how do we kind of answer that question? I think it's responsibly setting the level of service. So that's that's an important part of all of this. It's it's the demand side of things. And it used to be even five years ago, there was a pretty healthy, I guess, assumption about how much people used inside. And it was way more than what people really did. Mm-hmm. And I think we've gone a long ways in figuring that out, honing in on exactly what that is and changing level of service to match what is needed. So like you you were just referring to, so now there's more water to be spread around to others so that we can offset and provide more water for other purposes because per capita, we're actually diverting or allocating less, a more responsible amount. And you have the background institutional Excel sheet or Google sheet or model to actually back that up. Yes, because I do think that is one thing, like just today I was on LinkedIn and, you know, there was a article about I think Colorado Springs or somewhere about, I think the next step of the conversation about water conservation and water use here in the state of Utah, but also more broadly across the West is this growth question. You know, yes. how do we knock it out of our skis on growth? And, you know, we've seen here in the last couple of years, you've got towns like the town of Oakley stopped giving new building permits. Uh, Wolf Creek stopped giving new building permits. How do we kind of get out ahead of where we are? And I think in Colorado Springs, they did a ordinance that was saying that you had to have 130% of your water supply to do like a new annexation or something like that. And so right. are you seeing these cities now with this better data and with this better management tools, is that trickling up towards policy yet? Like, Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yes. And that's what we recommend. Hey, (laughs) use this now your new information that you have. So instead of just guessing and wildly creating policy, use this new data that we've collected to create policy that's more responsible. So yeah, absolutely. I guess that's a, you know, after you figure this all out, that's usually what happens is policy gets changed. And are those policies like, oh, shoot, we don't have enough water for new growth or, oh, or we have yeah, a lot some, less new growth than we thought we would, or we have more new growth? Like, what are you yeah, seeing kind of? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm seeing, oh, we don't have as much water as we thought we did. So that's one thing. But then we can make the water go further than we thought we could. So there, <laughs> there's a give and a take. The other thing that we're just now getting into, and that's what I've been working on with you, is, okay, so now when we put five cities together that are next to each other that have done this mass balance, are they overlapping? Mm-hmm. So is is three cities overlapping the same water and they're all counting on it? So if you do like a, a larger look and combine these together, we can see, oh, is, is your mass balance actually duplicating the, the next guy next to you. And so the so maybe they have the water rights. That's usually fine, but it's usually the physical supply. Hey, are you accounting for that same physical supply as that person over there? And if you step back and do bigger mass balances, it's a checks and balance 
of, okay, is that water really available? And we're seeing drastic corrections in some places that have to be made and communities realizing that, hey, we got to work together. We got to work together so that we're not over pumping the groundwater. We're not fighting, you know, for we're not pulling the water this way and that way that maybe we're actually working together to store the water when regionally it's the best time to store water and then using it when it's the best time to use it. So we've got to work together to maximize what's available. And, and so communities are are realizing this. Yeah, because together. Because I think too, the other element of that is my return flow is your water, right? Yes. Well, that too. <laughs> How can we use the water beneficially more than once mm-hmm. and not waste it? Because once yeah. it evaporates, most of the time it's not available for our state anymore. So Steve, as we kind of conclude here, like, what do you think? I mean, I, I, you know, still relatively newish in my career. And so every day I learn something new and it seems that kind of this mass balance approach is, is definitely been like a hot topic that has popped up for several of our clients in the last year to 18 months, you know, really yes. kind of like, this is, this is the future of how water management management is going to go. And, you know, like a lot of the tools that we just talked about, but at the same point in time, you know, you mentioned that there's the state engineers reporting is getting better about on the depletion yes. side. What do you think are the tools that could be developed to help to help people get here faster? Because, you know, obviously you're very smart. You're very good at your job. You, your clients receive great service. But there's also tons of municipalities across the Wasatch Front, across the state, who would benefit from these kind of tools. Like, are you seeing any ways to kind of expedite certain processes or, you know, if we could build a certain kind of open source platform that people could use? Like, what do you think is going to help us get more people to the place where your clients are in this kind of analysis? I think one tool could be, like we're working on right now, is larger basin mass balance analyses. Maybe it's really rough, but it it gives feedback to the individual communities, much like the the new state conservation goals we did in regions instead of a statewide goal to give feedback more regionally and feedback to the cities and a way for them to compare how they're doing. And so if we do this mass balance region-wide, basin-wide, that should give them a clue of, oh, maybe we need to get into the details here. So that's one tool to give feedback to lots of communities at once, but then also probably giving them, like you're alluding to, tools to help them do what other cities have done. Figure out their water rights. Put it in a, you know, a simplified mass balance or something, a tool that you know, maybe is simplified and people can start using themselves but somehow making it easier to do this analysis, to understand how much water do we have legally? How much water do we have physically? How can we work with our neighbors to maximize the water? So maybe some like templates and, and, yeah. and like, you know, like, a yeah, I'm just trying to think, like, I feel like, I think that is, I think that is the challenge of the next couple of years is I feel like every day we come across some cool project or we come across someone who's doing something really yes. innovative and it's just scaling that up, you, right. you know, scaling it to a place where most people can take advantage of it. It's not right. just the, the out in fronters anymore, but you know, we need to yes. kind of start building the ranks behind them. And what I've seen as the, 
the most effective is so the clients that I have helped and they have this cool tool, they have surplus water at the end of the year of a drought year. And their neighbors say, what's, what's going on? Why do you have plenty of water? And we don't. We blew through all of our surface water in the first three weeks. And you still have plenty at the end of the irrigation season. What's going on? And so it's, I guess, leading by example and saying, we want, we want to figure this out. So that's a component also is point out those who are doing well and have are, are trying to be responsible and have set policy to conserve water and use their water right portfolio and physical supply responsibly. If we point those out, maybe that'll encourage others to do the same. Yeah, I like that. Blue star, gold stars. Yeah. <laughs> right. I they do that for building efficiency. We can do that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Water efficiency. Exactly what we need. And it's almost, it's, it's even more than efficiency. It's just, it's like really best practice. Yeah. 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 Well, Steve, this has been great. And I think a really helpful insight, some of the nitty gritty that really is like water works, you know, like this is the, you know, this is what really is going to be where the rubber hits the road. And, and a yeah. lot of things that we're doing here in the state of Utah is just getting down into what each right does individually, how it trickles up into a portfolio, and then how it trickles up into maybe like a larger regional mass balance approach, because it, it, it is the meat of what we do. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, do you have anything else you want to add before we um, sign off here? Anything you think that our listeners would be interested in hearing? Hopefully it was all interesting. No, but <laughs> always. thank you for it's the opportunity. <laughs> yeah, I, I love talking about this. So thanks for providing the platform. Yeah, great. All right, Steve. Well, I'm sure we're going to have plenty of fun projects in the future and we'll have you back yes. on because there's great. never, never a dull day here in one. Right. <laughs> That's true. Nothing said in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. This podcast was produced by Andrew Humphreys. Find Ripple Effect on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening.